Hello again and welcome. My name is William Strejcik and this is the Orient Express, a historical podcast focusing on the Middle Eastern region, its politics, historical conflicts and overall development that is much needed in order to fully understand the present-day dynamics of the region and individual countries. In today's episode, we are going to talk about a Kurdish clan society in Persia, and more concretely, about its political development and power aspirations in the 19th and 20th century, which can provide us with a background of how the tribal society of Kurds was structured. We shall talk about the role of chieftains, sheikhs, and the relations of Kurds with foreign regional and global powers that affected the nationalist awakening of the Kurds. Based upon this episode, we shall subsequently continue with a second part that will discuss the Kurdish interwar rebellion of Chieftain Simko. All this and more in today's episode of the Orient Express podcast. Simko's career was not an atypical one for a Kurdish tribal leader. Most of the powerful Kurdish chieftains strengthened their positions within their tribes through various forms of association with outside forces, most commonly the Ottoman and Persian states, but since the late 19th century also the European great powers, and more recently yet, the United States of America. What made him unique is the nexus of time and space in which he operated. The Shikak territory, in the mountains to the west of Lake Urumia, was just inside Persia, but so close to the border that even in times of peace, Shikak influence extended into Ottoman territory. It was part of the periphery of both states. Until well into the 20th century, the border had not much practical significance for the Kurdish tribes, many of which had pastures on both sides. Nor did the border represent a fixed boundary to which Ottoman and Persian control extended. Authority in the frontier districts was in permanent flux. In 1906, Ottoman troops invaded Persian Azerbaijan and occupied a significant part of the Kurdish inhabited districts of that province. They remained there, though not in full control, until 1911, when they were expelled by the Russians. They later had in 1909 invaded the province and occupied Tabriz, which was then, together with Rasht, the last bastion of Persia's constitutional movement. They stationed infantry and Cossacks in Tabriz, Khoi, Deilaman and Urumia. Until the outbreak of the First World War, these managed to keep the Kurdish tribes in check without actually occupying their territory. The Russian troops were called back at the time of Enver Pasha's Caucasian campaign in December 1914, and in early January 1915, Ottoman troops, aided by Kurdish irregulars, briefly occupied Azerbaijan. Russian troops returned almost a year later and stayed in the region until Russia, in the wake of its revolution, withdrew from the war altogether. For a final brief period in 1918, Turkish troops, aided by Kurds, once again controlled parts of Azerbaijan. The conditions in which Simko could emerge as one of the three warlords on Iran's periphery who seriously threatened the integrity of the state were unique. But in many respects, his career exemplifies the relations between Kurdish tribes and the states in whose peripheries they existed. The internal structure of these tribes and the nature of the chieftains' authority over their followers are to a large extent a product of their relations with the state. Kurdistan has for millennia been not just a frontier area, but a buffer between two or more empires. Unlike Afghanistan, it has never been politically distinct but has been partitioned between two empires, the Ottoman and the Iranian, for almost five centuries. Nevertheless, the natural conditions like these could establish only a very little control over Kurdistan. Direct rule could only rarely be maintained, 
and usually some form of indirect rule through local chieftains was practiced, as it's still in some parts today. This contact with well-developed states stretching over many centuries had profound effects on the social organization of Kurdistan. When the Ottomans incorporated most of Kurdistan in circa 1515, there existed several emirates, state-like units of varying size and organizational complexity. The presence of more than one strong state in the vicinity also had its specific effects on the political process in Kurdistan. For instance, it gave the local chieftains more leverage in dealing with the Ottoman or Persian state. They could threaten to switch loyalties or actually do so. Moreover, the local rivals of these chieftains were not dependent on popular support if they desired to replace them, but could attempt to invoke the aid of the rival state. In several emirates, the ruling families were thus split into pro-Turkish and pro-Iranian branches. The 19th century witnessed, for obvious reasons, the emergence of pro-British and pro-Russian wings in Kurdistan's ruling circles. By the second half of the century, Russia and Britain had become the most significant powers in the area. The actions of the leading Kurds were strongly influenced by their perception that Britain and Russia were stronger than the Ottomans and the Iranians, and that both intended to acquire control of Kurdistan. Moreover, the emergence of Kurdish nationalism received a firm boost from the political and military advances these powers made, and of course from their support of Greek and Slav independence. Most Kurdish nationalists of the period 1818-1913 envisaged an independent state under British or Russian protection. To this day, the nature of the Kurdish nationalist movement is strongly influenced by the presence of the successors of these rival powers, the USA, and until its demise, the Soviet Union, and by the generally perceived need to enlist their support. In the first half of the 19th century, the Ottoman and Iranian governments, in their drive for administrative reform, abolished the remaining Kurdish Emirates. These reforms were the result of European pressure, as the courts realized only too well. The destruction of the last great emirate, Botan, and the capture of its ruler, Bedir Khan Beg, in 1847, was the immediate result of British intervention with the Porte. Bedir Khan Beg was responsible for the massacre of some of his Nestorian subjects, and the British demanded his punishment. The dissolution of the emirates resulted in chaos and lawlessness. Tribal conflicts, no longer checked by the emirs, proliferated. Not only the emirates themselves, but also most of the tribal confederacies, fell apart. Ambitious chieftains attempted to usurp as much as possible of the power formerly belonging to the emirs, which involved a lot of raiding, feuding and warfare. Contemporary reports all mention the absence of physical security. The state was as yet too weak to restore law and order. The most that provincial governors could do was to mount punitive raids or support one chieftain against others and occasionally back him with military support. They did not have the authority to negotiate or impose a solution in the many tribal conflicts. In the Hobbesian situation, there remained one type of traditional authority that could restore some kind of order, the sheikh. Sheikhs are holy men, usually associated with a Sufi or Dervish order. Many have a reputation for piety, wisdom and miraculous powers that earns them wide respect. Many people had and still have a special relationship with a particular sheikh, whom they visited periodically, 
sometimes just out of courtesy, but more often with the intention of receiving a protective amulet, a cure for disease, advice on spiritual or worldly matters, or mediation in a conflict. Sheikhs are generally not associated with any particular tribe, so that they are not party to any conflicts between tribes. This, and the wide respect some of them enjoyed, made them the only persons remaining that could resolve such conflicts, as go-betweens, counselors, mediators, notaries, and guarantors of agreements reached. The successful resolution of tribal conflicts in turn increased their prestige and political influence. Gradually, some sheikhs took over some of the functions of the former emirs. After a few decades of chaos and insecurity, from circa 1860, we find sheikhs as the most influential political leaders in Kurdistan. It is not accidental that most of the early Kurdish nationalist revolts until the 1930s were led by sheikhs. These were virtually the only leaders who could make a number of tribes act in concert. Another factor that contributed to the increasing political influence of these primarily religious leaders was European missionary activity, which resulted in anti-Christian feelings and a stressing of the Muslim identity of the Kurds. However, sheikhs not only resolved conflicts, precisely because their political power derived from their ability to do so, they also needed conflicts if they wished to increase their power. Some ambitious sheikhs, therefore, actually fanned conflicts between rival chieftains in order to impose their authority. Gradually, and not without reversals, the Ottoman state and its 20th century successors brought Kurdistan under close central control, breaking the power of the great tribal chieftains and sheikhs. The result was not the complete dissolution of the tribes, but a change in their character. Successful centralization broke larger structures up, but thereby freed their segments for independent action. The deeper the state and its administrative organs penetrated into Kurdish society, the smaller the tribal entities with which it interacted. Whereas until the early 19th century, Ottoman and Persian governors had dealt with the Kurds through largely autonomous emirs ruling large tribal conglomerates, in whose internal affairs they but rarely intervened, the first great administrative reforms replaced the emirs by centrally appointed district governors, who administered the tribal population through chieftains of large tribes and confederacies or an occasional influential sheikh. Further expansion of the state bureaucracy broke up the large tribes and confederacies and resulted in smaller chieftains being the middlemen between state and society. The relevant tribal units thus became even smaller, from emirates to confederacies to large tribes to smaller tribes. With the overreaching confederate structures gone, narrow tribal loyalties became more pronounced and tribal feuds increased. This general trend of devolution of the tribe was sometimes reversed, if only for a short time, when central authority weakened or when for some reason the state found the presence of strong tribes in its interest. The component tribes maintained their own identity. Each inhabited a well-defined territory and owed or had rights in well-defined pasture lands. Leadership in these tribes seemed more permanent than in the confederacies, thanks to marriage arrangements within their tribal community. These component tribes could be quite heterogeneous, as in the case of the Haverkan, when some were Muslim, some Yazidi, and where even Christian groups were considered as part of the confederacy. Not all of these tribes had equal political status within the confederacy. There were central tribes, so to say, which dominated the confederacy politically and militarily, and more marginal client or vassal tribes that had joined it because of its success or had been subjugated by it. 
The latter were the first to break away in times of adversity. In periods of relative quiet, it was virtually impossible for ambitious chieftains to rise to or maintain a position of effective paramount leadership of such large confederacies unless supported by a strong central state. Prestigious descent, lavish hospitality, wisdom, readiness to help his subjects might be necessary to make a chieftain respected, but were rarely sufficient to guarantee him general recognition as a paramount ruler. In such periods, there were several competitors for paramount leadership over the confederacy, each recognized by some of the tribesmen only. Within the component tribes, there were also several aspirant chieftains, each of whom allied himself with one of the competitors at the confederate level. This resulted in a factional system of the checkerboard type, in which the relevant units were sections of the component tribes. At times of weak government, however, such as the period of 1915 to 1930, the rival chieftains could indulge in the kind of military activities that increased their hold over tribes, the bridgent aspect of the chieftain. These included raiding caravans or towns, or the villages of neighboring tribes, an excellent means of reinforcing the unity of one owned tribe. But apparently, raids against villages or camp groups of one owned tribes were equally important. These raids were directed mainly against the non-tribal subjects of a rival chieftain and the client tribes that recognized this authority. From the last decades of the 19th century onwards, many chieftains thought it useful to establish context with Russian or Britain besides the states of the region. These powers, though despised, were seen as more powerful and therefore more useful allies than the Sultan or the Shah. The British appear to have remained it non-committal until the First World War, but Russia several times invited leading courts on tours of the Caucasus and Georgia, made them many promises and distributed much money and other presents among chieftains, which strengthened the latter positions. It should not be assumed that at any period in the past all courts were tribal. There have always been large numbers of Kurdish non-tribal peasants with no autonomous social organization beyond shallow lineages. The tribesmen that dominated and exploited them superimposed their own organizational structure on theirs. Thus, a peasant living on land controlled by the Shikak confederacy might identify himself with a particular tribe or subtribe of that confederacy, and even feel antagonism towards the other peasants living with rival Shikak sections. They might play a part, though mainly as victims, in feuds between subtribes, but no one would consider them as Shikak proper. The tribesmen were a military elite, usually but not necessarily of nomadic origin. The terms Ashir and Ashiret are often used not to denote any particular tribe, but the tribesmen as a sort of military caste. Several 19th century travelers observed that the terms Ashiret and Sepahi, the latter referred to the traditional Ottoman military class, the feudal cavalry, were used interchangeably in Kurdistan. Since many nomadic tribesmen have settled and taken up agriculture, the difference between tribal and non-tribal courts had become less obvious. It is, however, still recognized by the courts themselves, and is frequently reflected in the control of land. Tribesmen generally own some land. Informants from several Kurdish tribes in Iran claim not to know of any fellow tribesman who is not at least a small landowner. Non-tribal courts, on the other hand, are usually tenants, sharecroppers or landless agricultural laborers. The loyalties of Kurdish tribesmen are embedded in a system of segmentary alliance and opposition. 
In the period under consideration, however, there appeared two important ideologies that appealed to wider loyalties than the tribal ones, pan-Islamism and Kurdish nationalism. There is a certain similarity between the pan-Islamic and the Kurdish nationalist movement on the one hand and the states on the other, in their relations with the Kurdish tribes and chieftains. For the chieftains, these movements offered the same ideological and material sources of power as the state. The movements, however, needed the tribes to give them military strength, but they found them as unstable as the states did. This is especially true of the nationalist movement. Tribal division had always been its main weakness. The pan-Islamic movement was closely linked to the Ottoman state, or more precisely, to the Sultan at Khalif. It became influential in Kurdistan for at least three reasons. First, the European powers and their perceived support for the Christians in Kurdistan aroused Kurdish anxieties. The Christian threat made Muslim solidarity appear necessary for defensive reasons. Moreover, pan-Islamism was to give the Kurdish tribesmen a license to loot Christian property. Secondly, it was in the interest of the sheikhs, the most influential leaders in Kurdistan, to strengthen Islamic sentiment. They were its most fanatical propagandists. Thirdly, Sultan Abdul Hamid II, the chief initiator of the pan-Islamic movement and the founder and patron of the Hamidiyya, was perceived by the Kurdish chieftains as their protector against the reform-minded state bureaucracy that desired to break their powers. His successors inherited these loyalties. According to some observers, pan-Islamic propaganda was so effective that in 1913 to 1915 almost all courts, including those of Iran, responded to the call of jihad, but others seriously contest their commitment to the Ottoman Islamic cause. Kurdish nationalism developed partly as a reaction to and an imitation of Armenian nationalism and later the Young Turk movement. Both the British and the Russians stimulated this nationalism, which they intended to use against the Ottomans. What appears to have been the first serious attempt to establish something like an independent Kurdish state was made in 1880 by Ubaidullah, a sheikh of great influence in the districts southeast of Lake Van. With an army recruited from the many tribes under his influence, he invaded Iranian Azerbaijan, where many of the local tribes joined him. The sheikh had the tacit support of Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who approved of the idea of a Kurdish vassal state on formal Iranian territory and who apparently intended to use the sheikh against the Armenian revolutionaries. Not deeming the sultan's support sufficient, Ubaidullah also wrote letters to the British government to inform them of his intentions. He failed, but the idea of an independent Kurdish state remained. It was embraced by many chieftains, if only because it seemed to promise them more personal freedom and power. During the First World War, pan-Islamic sentiment proved on the whole stronger than Kurdish national feeling, and there were no serious attempts to separate Kurdish territory from the Ottoman Empire. Abdul Razak Bedirkan, with a Kurdish force of some 500 men, took part in operations against the Ottomans alongside the Russians, but his efforts appear to have remained insignificant and not to have provoked the large Kurdish uprising he probably hoped for. The tribes had little affinity with the idea of a Kurdish nation-state. After the Ottoman defeat, however, nationalism spread rapidly across all Kurdistan. There was a general awareness of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, which included the principle of self-determination, and of British plans for a Kurdish buffer state between Turkey and Mesopotamia. 
as an independent Kurdish state became feasible, many sheikhs and tribal chieftains suddenly became nationalists and revolted. The difference between such national rebellions and the more traditional type of chieftain's revolt was not a sharp one, as may be shown in the case of Simkos rebellion, the most important of the type to occur in Iranian Kurdistan. With that being said, we've arrived to the end of the first part of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aims to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. If you like this episode, I will be more than glad if you leave a rating or if you share it amongst your friends or at social media. This particular episode and all the information come from a book called Iran and the First World War by Turaj Atabaki. Also, if you found this episode interesting, you can visit my Instagram or Facebook account called The Orient Express Podcast, where I'm constantly posting interesting stuff related to previous or upcoming episodes. So if you're curious about the topic of the upcoming episode, don't forget to hit the like and follow button and share this episode amongst your friends. See you next week with another episode of The Orient Express Podcast.